Hello and welcome back to Sabbath School from Home. We've got a really fun task ahead of us because we're plodding through the book of Ephesians and we're finding it to be, uh, so far, quite delightful. And we've got more to open on this episode. I'm Lachlan and I think this will be quite a lot of fun. I'm Luke and I'm going to be very boring and angry with Lachlan. <laughs> and it's again the two of us. Um, and it may be this way for a little bit, just as, as life is um, busy and complicated in various ways, but um, we hope that we, we can still provide a conversation or at least some thoughts that might be valuable, and hopefully they stimulate your thinking to, um, to continue after the, the period of time allotted to this episode finishes. So where we got up to in our last episode was halfway or thereabouts through Ephesians 2, and... Um, you know, we, we observed, perhaps last week, we observed that in about 12 weeks, reading through a book that's about six chapters long, uh, the half a chapter a week is is going to get us through the whole book. And that's that's quite an interesting activity. So I think what we need to do is we need to start by reading the remainder of Ephesians 2, uh, which is picking up in verse 11 and reading down to where it finishes in verse 22. And I recall, Luke, that last time we had this chat, you read um, most of the Bible passage. So I'm going to make a start here and I might yeah, um, hand it over towards you to, to you towards the end. So this is verse 11 of Ephesians 2. Don't forget that you Gentiles used to be outsiders. You were called uncircumcised heathens by the Jews who were proud of their circumcision, even though it affected only their bodies and not their hearts. In those days, you were living apart from Christ. You were excluded from citizenship among the people of Israel And you did not know the covenant promises God had made to them. You lived in this world without God and without hope. But now you have been united with Christ Jesus. Once you were far away from God, but now you have been brought near to him through the blood of Christ. For Christ himself has brought peace to us. He united Jews and Gentiles into one people when, in his own body on the cross, he broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. He did this by ending the system of law with its commandments and regulations. He made peace between Jews and Gentiles by creating in himself one new people from the two groups. Together, as one body, Christ reconciled both groups to God by means of his death on the cross, and our hostility towards each other was put to death. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through him we have both access in one spirit to the Father. Sorry. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Right. Well, there are some cool ideas to to get to here. Mm. Um, the I love that last verse. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's it's an echo. It's an echo of the the verse we ended on last week, verse ten. For we are God's yes, masterpiece. Exactly. He's created us anew in Christ Jesus. It's it's the same sentiment echoing again, isn't it? Mm. Yeah, very very much so. Um, it, it, it's a recurring theme of, of Ephesians so far. Is this very encouraging, mm. um, hopeful message? So, what was your um, what was your translation's rendering there of verse twenty two? In him, you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. 
Yeah. So the New Living Translation um, also being made part of this dwelling where God lives by His Spirit. Very, very similar. And I just think that's a that's an extension. Verse 10, last week, we're God's masterpiece. And now here in verse 22, we're being made part of the dwelling where God lives by His Spirit. Different metaphor. Very, very similar kind of sense. Mm. Oh, that's very That's very cool. Well, the other bit that jumped out at me was obviously... Verse 14 and 15, um, which I think we should discuss briefly and then turn to the broader theme of this this unity, the, the breakdown of the apartness. Because verse 14 and 15, of course, are touchy verses for someone who's been brought up as an Adventist. Um, I, can't see, I can't see where the controversy was. Yeah, verse 15, he did this by ending the system of law with its commandments and regulations. <laughs> don't, we, don't we pride ourselves? Um, haven't we just recently, while discussing Revelation, been guided by a Sabbath school pamphlet that went out of its way to pride itself on um, being, being the commandment-keeping Christians? Um, yes, we have. <laughs> and I, I'm, I'm trying to think of a good way to express um, the idea here. I think Ephesians, even within itself, even within this chapter, it is quite clear that whatever is meant by the abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances in verse 15 um it doesn't mean that you can then do whatever you want Mm. or you should do whatever you want um you know just just up 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 in uh, verse which one was it verse verse three and four of ephesians 2 makes it very clear that um just doing whatever you want, pursuing your desires mm. and passions, um, is is not what it means to be Christian. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a good point. And of course, the other theme that's been coming through is this idea of being united with Christ. <clears throat> I, I I would point out as well. Cause, I mean, Adventists take this very much in the context of Sabbath keeping mm. as the relevant commandment kind of ignoring the fact that Deuteronomy's got a bunch of others uh, that we make no effort to keep whatsoever. Yeah. Um, but um, it's interesting, the assumption there, that we need to have the law of commandments still be relevant to make us keep the Sabbath, because, of course, we wouldn't keep the Sabbath if it wasn't a law. Mm. The law is the only reason we keep it. It's not because it's, not it's, it's, it's good for us or we want to. Right, uh, that's an because we'll be punished if we don't. Yeah, um, surely, surely that's perhaps not the best rationale. Well, it, I Sabbath just think people. it's fascinating because if you if you say to your average Seventh Day Adventist, you know, why do you keep the Sabbath? Um, do you do you keep it because if you don't keep it, you'll be punished? They'll go, oh no 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 no, of course not. It's, it's not it's not about being punished. Mm. Um, but then you go, but it, but 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 you know verse 15 of Ephesians 2, it's not really abolishing the law that says you must keep the Sabbath. Oh, no, 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 it's very important we have that law. Yeah. What? what why? Well, um, precisely. I actually think that deep down quite a lot of Adventists are afraid that if they break the Sabbath, they will be punished. Um, even while they sort of say, oh, that's probably not why I'm doing it. There's a There's a sort of cultural imprint. There's a there's a narrative, a collective communal narrative that's so heavily labored 
uh, for someone who has grown up as an Adventist, that um, it's it's a little bit inescapable, I think, at times. Um, I mean, just focusing in here on verse 15, he did this by ending the system of law with its commandments. He, he did what? In verse 14, Christ himself has brought peace to us. He united Jews and Gentiles into one people. Um, when in his own body on the cross, he broke down the wall of hostility. I think part of this has to be understood as the the system of law and commandments and regulations that that is ended, as identified in verse 15, is is the pattern of regulation that explicitly divided the Jews from the Gentiles in the temple worship process. Um, and, you know, I to the extent that Jesus on his cross broke down the walls that separated Jew from Gentile, I think that he also broke down the walls that separate male from female. And I note with interest that there were regulations imposing certain restrictions in that regard as well, um, in terms of proximity to the religiously significant, the spiritually significant events. Well, um, I think it's a, it's, a, it's a really interesting thought because, and we've seen this in other parts of the Bible we've studied, mm. the location of worship was vitally important. Yeah. And only Jews could worship at the temple, and then the, you know, the Samaritans worshipped at a different place. And mm. even very early in Israel's histories... Um, I remember that wonderful story about the tribe setting up an altar on the other side of the river. Mm. Um, and they, everybody almost went to war over it until it was established that their motives were really good. And they weren't setting it up as an alternate place of worship, yeah. but as, as, a, as a, a tribute to the real place of worship. And, you know, the, the, the only altar. And, and so this, this idea of there being one altar and it's only for the Israelites... So only they can worship God, uh, at least only they can worship God there. And this is now saying everybody can worship. Mm. And what, it, what, what, did, what did Jesus, you know, the question was, what did Jesus do? Well, he didn't go around telling everyone not to keep the Ten Commandments. Yeah. Um, in fact, he quite explicitly stated the opposite. Yeah. Um, and in, in great detail and with excellent um, use of, of parable. Mm. Um but what he did do, well, what happened on his death was, you know, the curtain in the temple was was torn apart, um, and and the the temple as a place of worship became, well, like you said, it, worship became open to yeah. to everyone. Now, as you've been saying that, it's made me realize something in specific relation to the Sabbath, which is, of course, what as identified, is what the Adventists, what we Adventists tend to have in mind when we are worried about the ending of the system of law with its commandments. Frankly, specifically by breaking down the barriers that had been built up of exclusion, isn't really what's being talked about here all through the passage we read, the second half of Ephesians 2. It's actually talking about a theme which is the very core theme of Sabbath itself in the first place. Because the core theme of Sabbath, as identified in the Ten Commandments, is the universality of it all. The Sabbath is a rest that is meant to be experienced not just by the, um, you know, Mm. religious holy man in the house, but also by the children and the family and the manservant and the maidservant and the animals and and the the aliens and the the foreigners. And isn't it fascinating that that was... Always the case. Only the Israelites could worship the temple. Mm. But it was explicitly stated that they must let everybody 
keep the Sabbath. Yes. Yeah. So in a way, the Sabbath was the thing that is, it's not, if we're going to bring our Adventist sensibilities and sensitivities here, uh, verse 15 can't be interpreted in any way as being justification for diminishment of the significance of Sabbath. It is really just the outflowing and the the expansion of the idea that was already contained within Sabbath. Mm. Well, there you go, Look, we've solved it. Well, that's that's good. If we've solved that, we need to move on to the next one, which actually I think is a good question. And I fear it's a very open-ended question because the Sabbath School lesson this week correctly identifies the theme or the, the emphasis here in the, this part of Ephesians 2 as being about a kind of horizontal reconciliation. There is a sense important sense in which the cross makes a massive relationship change, a status change in our relationship humans to God. That's vertical, let's say. But humans to other humans is what the lesson identifies as horizontal. And this passage does talk about that significantly in the context of Gentiles and Jews. Anyway, the lesson's question is as follows. What does this truth mean for us today? And I think if we're going to tackle that, then one of the things we might want to consider is whether we feel more like the Jews or the Gentiles, and whichever one we are, can we identify who the other party might be? Well, there's a leading question. <laughs> uh, given, given what we've just done in, in terms of a 10-minute conversation about the nuance of defending the Sabbath and the commandments of God, I have to admit, I think we might be the Jews. I think you're, prob- you, you're probably <laughs> right. In, in terms of self-perception, I think Adventists would self-identify yeah. with, with Jews rather than Gentile, uh, yeah. if, it, if it was put to them in a survey. Um, I personally rather, rather feel like the Gentile. Mm. Um, even though I grew up in, in the church, as it were, um, I, I don't feel as though Christianity is sort of an inheritance that I was born into. Mm. Um, I do feel like it's it's something that, you know, w- was offered to me as as a gift. Mm. Um, but anyway, uh, no. Well, I think that's a that's a very perceptive thought. Remember the context here of these Ephesians are people who were believers in Acts. They're described as believers, but they had they had some information missing, and Paul comes and gives them greater clarity. Um, and and all th- all through the verses we've read so far, you know, the last couple of weeks, to describe it as a gift that is offered is, I think, a very profound expression of what this whole thing is. Hmm. Um. I I notice the word peace appears mm-hmm. a, a lot mm-hmm. in this section. Um, verse fourteen, peace. Yeah. Fifteen, peace. Uh, yeah. 16 doesn't say peace, but it says reconcile. Yeah. Uh, and the end of hostility. 17, peace. Ah. Um, and and then, you know, many similar things. But, you know, it's, it's repeated mul- multiple times. Mm. Um, he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Mm. Um by abolishing the law of commandments, expression of that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. Mm. And my, I also notice that 14 to 16 is one sentence. Right. That's not it's, the case in the New Living Translation. They had mercy on the orator. 
in my particular translation here, it's one running thought that goes mm. all the way through to and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Um, so again, peace. Yeah. Peace between everybody. Yeah. Now, um, you know, just before we hit record, you made a remark that was intended as flippant, but it's certainly historical observation that the peace described here um, has, has not remained consistent. Um, I mean, specifically the peace between the Jews and the Gentiles. <laughs> it's, it's not something that I think the Christian church as a whole historically can claim to have uh, pursued with any great success, mm, mm. Um, making peace with the, with the Jews. Um, and, and then, of course, more broadly, I mean, even just beyond the, um, the Jew versus Gentile kind of history and, and all of the, the bleakness associated with that, um, so many parts of the world have the same, the same little narratives. I mean, you have the, the situation in Ireland with the Protestants and the Catholics, and you have um, the... Well, you say Ireland, um, you could just say Europe. You could, you could say most of the world. Um, you have the... If we go one step outside the, the sort of religious sphere, it, a lot of this ends up being really just just versions of of racism um really and that's fairly ubiquitous across mm, many or, cultures or, or political machination yeah yeah you know power pursuits so i suppose this is so is this a reasonable reading the um paul is actually in an interesting context here because he's he's writing here to people in ephesus who are believers they're not in jerusalem that they're, they're not in israel um I mean, in a sense, these people are actually embedded. That they are fairly similar to the to the non-believers in Ephesus, in in that they are, um, you know, legally that they're Greek. They're sort of legally Roman. Um, yes, but be citizens of the the polis. Yeah, but Paul identifies in the in verses eleven and twelve and thirteen. Paul gives a summary backdrop of the status quo the division, the separation between the Gentiles and the Jews. Um, so, I mean, I guess if we're going to take this question from the lesson at face value and say, what does this truth mean for us today? The truth of the peace and of this, the breaking down of the walls of hostility, then where are there walls of hostility that might need to be broken down? Or where is there peace that might need to be reinforced? Um, and, and I guess most specifically within our own religious communities. Um, because I think this is I think this is really the context that um, that this passage is speaking most directly to. And especially within our Christian communities, because if there's validity in what Paul writes here about the event of Christ's crucifixion having relevance to these discussions about hostility between groups, Paul argues that Christ's death on the cross broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. That's verse 14. Um, you know, I my mind went immediately, and this, this perhaps won't surprise the listeners, my mind went immediately to contrasting this train of thought with some of the lines of reasoning that were repeated fairly heavily in last quarter's Sabbath school lesson that had plenty of fingers ready to point um, at the Catholic organization, and at times, at all Sunday-keeping Christians, which is a fairly blanketing um, category. So 
So I can't really reconcile some of those slightly more conventional, more historical elements of Adventists' attitudes to other denominations mm. with, with what Paul is writing here. Um, I'm, I mean, fun, fundamentally, I think, if, if, and I know Ephesians, um, uh, people will say about it, you know, the first three chapters is the theory and then the last three is the practical. Mm. But I think if we're to look at this and go, well, what are we called to do? Mm. It's, it's pretty clear that we're supposed to we're supposed to make peace. We're supposed to be at peace, especially with other believers. Um, and that is believers in Christ, not believers in a specific mm. set of doctrines unrelated to Christ. Mm. Um, and I, I think that's it's just a really clear instruction. And if we think through the implications of what it means to follow that, we might reconsider the way that we talk about other Christians in particular. Um, but, I mean, that's not a new thought for me. I'm sure I've said it before multiple times that just think it's a mistake to be judging other Christians or thinking about other denominations in those terms at all. Mm. When we're thinking about others, what we should be thinking about is how to be at peace with them. And that's it. Yeah. And I, I, you're exactly right to focus in on our, as in Adventists, or any Christians, interaction with other Christians, um, because it's, it's widely observed, isn't it? We seem, humans seem, more troubled by, more challenged by, more upset by, small differences rather than large differences. So, <laughs> so Adventists find it way easier to be at peace with the the Buddhist, or even perhaps their atheist neighbor, then, then they do historically find it easy to be at peace with a, a Catholic Christian or, fascinatingly, maybe a fellow Protestant that might have very similar ideas except for the day of worship. <laughs> and mm. and it, it's remarkable to me, isn't it, that the more similar, the, the more area there is of common ground that we could actually focus on, the more likely we are to focus instead on the differences, the walls that separate us. Yeah, it's it's an observation that I had, not so much in the religious area, but more in the cultural one, that the biggest, um, the biggest incidents tend to occur uh, as a result of, of uh, the smallest differences. Because when the differences are very small, mm. people will tend to make the assumption that they're not there. <sighs> Because okay. when the differences are very big, you can't overlook them. Yeah. And if you don't overlook them, you account for them in your thinking and expectations are managed and all as well. It's when you don't realize that there are cultural differences and therefore you're not communicating what you think you're communicating that you run into the very big misunderstanding. Right. Um, that... And I, I, I would, I've observed this consistently in many different contexts. Um, <laughs> a good one in Australia is... Um, the difference between um, the culture in rural Australia, country Australia, and urban Australia, right? Su suburban Australia. Um, if you go, who's got who's got a bigger cultural difference? A you know a, a a an Australian of European background who lives in Sydney and an Australian of Asian background who lives in Sydney, mm. or the Australian of European background who lives in Sydney and the Australian of European 
background who lives in the country, the temptation on the surface would be to say that the people of different ancestries have the more different culture. Yep. I guarantee you it's the city person and the country person that have the bigger difference. It doesn't yeah. matter that they've got the same ethnicity. Because um, people who live in a city in their day-to-day lives have a lot more common shared experiences than people who live in completely different environments would have. And living yeah. in the city in Australia and living in the country is wildly different. Um, yeah, well, that's true. So it doesn't surprise me at all um, the idea that we, we, we tend to get on quite well, in fact, with people who are very different from us and find really, really good ways to have fights and arguments with people who are almost exactly the same. <laughs> and, of course, you don't even need to look outside the domination. Some of the most vitriolic arguments take place even uh, oh, just within the, a denomination. They're directed against Adventists who aren't exactly the same as the, uh, the, the Adventist with the complaint. And, you know, we're probably as guilty of that as much as anybody else. <laughs> um, but, I, I mean, yeah, it's... It, it's probably accurate at this point to say that, you know, Adventists, Adventism's biggest, well, at least for some in Adventism, their biggest perceived enemies are within the church. Mm. Mm. I wonder um, whether, so I wonder whether verse 18 might um, be an emphasis that we should focus on a little more. And this is really in the theme of just looking a little harder at the things that we do hold in common with others rather than focusing in on what we have different. Verse 18 reminds us now, all now in the light of Jesus, now all of us can come to the Father through the same Holy Spirit because of what Christ has done for us. In other words, mm. one of the reasons that we can move past the walls that separated us is because we recognize the common element, the common, what we do hold in common. And maybe just looking for that is a really helpful technique for for trying to be a little less distracted by by walls of hostility. Hmm. Yeah, I I like the um, I guess it's it's a kind of metaphor, but the and and I don't remind me what um, verse nineteen. How does verse nineteen in your version read? Ah, oh, right. Uh, so now you Gentiles are no longer strangers and foreigners. You are citizens along with all of God's holy people. Mm. Right, so he uses the word citizens. I really mm. like that as a, as a kind of concept. I mean, citizenship of a country confers tremendous privileges within mm. that country. Um, and to not be a citizen confers... Tremendous disadvantages. Yes. Um, even when you're in a society that is making an effort to be inclusive, which uh, is probably not the case with the Israelites. <laughs> yeah. Um, so it's it's. I mean, I that, that is to say, I think it's it's a very remarkable concept that that Paul is is espousing. Um, I think I can I can see why the leaders of the jewish nation at this time basically considered christians to be you know these incredibly dangerous unhinged lunatic heretics yeah because they were going around saying well everybody's now a citizen of israel everybody in the whole world because mm. israel was was a a theocracy yes it wasn't a, a modern nation state as we think about it. so essentially what what jesus was teaching and what um you know paul is saying here is that hey this 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 closed club 
has now thrown its membership open to literally everybody. Everybody in the whole world can come and worship in the temple mm. and worship the same God. Yeah, when you put it like that, it really is a very provocative idea, isn't it? Mm. I think what you've put your finger on there, Luke, is a very um, compelling idea. This, this metaphor of citizenship, um, uh, what you've said is, I'm going to go and think about that a little more, because I think that this is this is a more provocative and more profound metaphor than I have often uh, previously considered as, I, as I've read the words. And actually, in these closing verses, there's a whole lot of metaphors that come piled on top of each other. There's a metaphor of strangers and foreigners versus citizens. There's a, mem- a metaphor of God's family. There's a metaphor of house and of construction. And then it finally closes out in verse 22 with that um, you Gentiles are also being made part of this dwelling where God lives. So actually that's sanctuary, that's temple metaphor, where we are as the community of believers being made part of a dwelling where God lives by his spirit, which is a, mm. a really pretty profound idea. So it's a very given the time, idea. why don't we wrap that one up there? And um, all of you who are listening, thank you for listening. And mm. hopefully you also feel a little bit inspired to ponder and explore some of these metaphors, um, perhaps in a way that you haven't previously had time or inclination to do. Um, it's obviously the most effective thing. The most stimulating thing is if, um, you know, the conversations that we have on this podcast might be able to lead to trains of thought and useful ideas for you in your lives and also in your communities. If you do have anything that you'd like to share with us, you can write to sabbathschoolfromhome at gmail.com and we'd really love to have you listening again next week.